Hello everyone and welcome to PA Study Sesh. I'm your host McKenna Morgan and today we'll be discussing vascular disorders. Alright everybody, welcome back. Thank you for continuing to tune in. I am sitting here in a different place than I have been recording before. I have bought a house and have since moved since we last talked, so hopefully the acoustics are okay. If they're not, please write to me and let me know. As promised, today we are talking about vascular disease. Um, Arteriovenous malformations are also added to the blueprint for those taking it in 2019. However, it was also added to the neuro section, and I think it's better placed there, so I'm going to discuss it there. So, without further ado, let's get on with our vascular disorders and start with our questions. What disorder is associated with a widened mediastinum on chest x-ray? This is an aortic dissection. Where are venous stasis ulcers typically located? This is the medial malleolus. What is the first line diagnostic test for a suspected DVT? And this is an ultrasound. Venus ultrasound specifically. All right, we're just going to dive in with our first topic. I decided to talk about peripheral artery disease first. And patients will present with pain in the lower extremities, increased with exercise, and relieved with rest. And this is called claudication. And really imagine that this is angina for the legs. It's a supply and demand problem. They get pain with exercise when they have more demand, relieves when we decrease the demand. This happens most commonly in the calf, it is the periphery. On physical exam, you'll have decreased peripheral pulses, makes sense, they have less blood flow, decreased capillary refill, atrophic skin changes, again, less blood flow means less growth. And what I mean by these atrophic skin changes are thin slash shiny skin, hair loss, or cool limbs. They'll also have what's called dependent rubor, which is the limb will turn pale on elevation and then dusky red with dependency. And finally, another symptom they may have is lateral malleolar ulcers with well-defined borders. And how I remember that it's a lateral malleolar ulcer, excuse me, if I can speak today, how I remember that it's on the lateral malleolus is that there's not an artery on the lateral side, a major artery, I should say. There's an artery on the medial side, if you remember your Tom, Dick, and Nervous Harry mnemonic. For those of you fresh in out of anatomy, there's not one on the lateral side. So when we decrease blood flow, the first place for the blood flow to leave is the furthest away from the major vessels. So I don't know if that's the true mechanism of action for why there is on the, um, why the ulcers are on the lateral side, but that's what made the most sense to me. And then uh, we'll talk about this later, but the venous diseases are on the opposite side. So again, patients with peripheral artery disease will have ulcers on the lateral malleolus with well-defined borders. And I remember this because the nearest artery is on the medial side, which is far away from that lateral side. Diagnosis of PAD is used is using the ankle brachial index. You'll also see this abbreviated as ABI. And this is a ratio of the blood pressure at the ankle compared to the arm. So a lower blood pressure in the ankle means less blood flow, which will lower that index. 
and it uses a screening tool and it's positive if the ABI is less than 0.9. However, gold standard of diagnosis is arteriography. And remember, most gold standards are because they directly show us. This gives us a picture of the occlusion. But it's pretty invasive, it's pretty expensive, so it's usually only done in practice if they're planning to revascularize. So your ABI will be pretty low at that point. Management, give them some platelet inhibitors. We don't want them to clot, which we'll talk about in just a second. Um, aspirin, clopidogrel, or silostazol. Exercise is really important to them. They're going to exercise to the point that they have pain. Then they're going to rest. Then they're going to exercise a little more. I don't know if that mechanism is necessarily important, but exercise for these patients is super important. Uh, if this gets worse, they may get revascularization, such as an angioplasty or a fempop bypass. Again, I just think no, platelet inhibitors, exercise, possible surgery. Okay, moving on now to acute arterial embolism. This has several causes, but it can be a complication of peripheral artery disease. But really anything that can cause someone to throw a clot can cause this. Little definition here, because we're going to throw around the terms thrombus and embolus several times throughout this lecture. Here we're talking about acute arterial embolism. An embolism is a clot that has originated elsewhere and then lodges basically where the problem is. A thrombus is a clot that has originated where the symptoms are currently. So here, for example, a clot may originate in the heart and then is thrown into the leg and blocks an artery. That is the definition of an embolism. So just an example. These will have the six P's. Paresthesias, pain, pallor, pulselessness, paralysis, poikilothermia. These are going to sound super duper familiar because these are the same as the six P's of compartment syndrome. Yay for less things to remember. Um, except for that these patients compare, uh, um, these patients complain of paresthesias first. And as we mentioned earlier, they have different risk factors. So how I kind of remember these as far as their primary symptom not this is necessarily completely accurate, but if you cut off your circulation, that very uh, colloquial phrase, you get numb and tingly. Whereas if you're squeezed tightly, like those with compartment syndrome, who were maybe put in a cast too soon, for example, that's very painful. So hopefully that helps you guys remember that acute arterial embolisms have the six Ps, but primarily paresthesias, whereas compartment syndrome, since they're squeezed so tightly, are painful. Treatment, we have a clot, so we have heparin, and thrombolytics, if it was a thrombus, thrombolytics, if it was a thrombus, or an embolectomy, if needed. Okay, hopefully that made sense. Moving on to a AAA, abdominal aortic aneurysm. This is defined as greater than 3.0 centimeters. These often occur infrarenally. That's infra, that means below the renal arteries. Okay, below the kidneys. Risk factors. 
Atherosclerosis is number one. Boards really like to pick on smokers. They're usually male over the age of 60. It's also possible of patients with connective tissue disorders. Another kind of little term, I don't think it's super duper important, but it's called Laplace's Law. And to boil it down, it just says larger aneurysms expand more quickly. And uh, this is important when it comes to monitoring. So we'll just kind of keep that in mind in about a minute. So uh, patient symptoms of those with a AAA are often none. Sometimes they'll have a tender pulsatile abdominal mass on physical exam. If they have a rupture, they'll have severe back and abdominal pain. They may have syncope and hypotension. Makes sense. Uh, diagnosis of this is an abdominal ultrasound. This is the initial study of choice. And it's also used for monitoring. We may also use the CT for thoracic aneurysms and pre-surgical planning. However, we're going to complicate this a little bit and say that the gold standard is angiography. Again, it shows us a picture. So since it's the most uh, definitive test, it's going to be the gold standard. However, the initial study of choice is still an ultrasound. So remember, those are two different questions and therefore two different answers. All right. Management of patients with a AAA. Beta blockers to reduce the rupture risk. For patients whose um, aorta, members, aorta measures 3 to 4 centimeters, they get an ultrasound every year. If it's 4 to 4.5 centimeters, they get one every 6 months. Again, remember Laplace's law says that larger aneurysms expand more quickly. So we got to watch them more often. Once it hits 4.5, we want to refer them to vascular surgery. And if all of a sudden we get to them and they're at greater than five and a half, or they have more than a half a centimeter growth within six months, they get immediate surgical repair, regardless of symptoms. Now, moving on to aortic dissection. Now, aortic dissection and aortic rupture are not the same thing. Aortic ruptures are triple A's that then balloon out and pop. An aortic dissection is more of a split. It's a tear in the intimal layer of the aorta, that, that very inner layer of the aorta tissue. So it creates this false lumen that the blood then flows to. So basically the blood isn't flowing out into the abdominal cavity, it's flowing out into another little pathway within the aorta. These most often occur in an ascending fashion so how I remembered them is that aorta dissections are aorta high sections. So they're high up. One, they're high up in the aorta. They're usually in the thoracic region. And they're ascending, so high sections. And ascending um, dissections are usually the most fatal of the two. Risk factors, hypertension, usually age 50 to 60. But connective tissue disorder patients may present at a younger age. Symptoms here is a severe knife-like tearing, makes sense, you're splitting this vascular tissue apart, in the chest and upper back. It may have decreased peripheral pulses with a greater than 20 
milligrams of mercury difference between the left and right arm. They may have hypertension and a new onset aortic regurgitation murmur. Again, remembering that aortic dissections are typically happening in the thoracic aorta. Okay. Diagnosis of this, uh, the test of choice is a CT with contrast. We're in the chest, CTs. MRI angiography is the gold standard. However, they need to be hemodynamically stable. However, if they are unstable, initial evaluation is usually with transesophageal echocardiograph, TEE. You may also get a chest x-ray of these patients, which will show a widened mediastinum. You see widened mediastinum, think aortic dissection. Okay. Just to recap that, test of choice, CT with contrast, gold standard, MRI angiography, unstable patient, TEE, transesophageal echocardiograph, and if they get a chest x-ray, buzzword is widened mediastinum. Management, again, conservative versus surgical. Your surgical criteria are all proximal, which is involving the ascending aorta, or distal, which means they don't involve the ascending aorta with complications. So again, that's all that involve the ascending aorta or any that are complicated. Don't waste your time with the standard or debate classification. Basically, it kind of says what I just said. Um, but I think there are better things to spend your time on, on whether um, it's an A or B. Basically, when I said all proximal, that's a Stanford A. Distal is, is a Stanford B. And then DeBakey breaks that up a little bit. And it's just, again, I don't think worth your effort unless then you go into cardiothoracic surgery. So that's my opinion. <laughs> Medical management are those who... Uh, in those dissections that involve the descending aorta without complications. So these are stable patients um, that are descend descending dissections. And they're going to get beta blockers such as esmolol or levetalol. Okay. Transitioning out of the heart. Superficial thrombophlebitis. It's a very benign inflammatory reaction. It's associated with uh, IVs, trauma, pregnancy, or varicose veins. It may have some tenderness, edema, erythema, or a palpable cord along a superficial vein. This is typically a clinical diagnosis, but you could do a venous ultrasound and they'll have a non-compressible vein with a clot. A workup isn't typically needed unless you're really concerned about a hypercoagulability disorder or possibly cancer. Management, elevation, warm compresses, NSAIDs, compression, and resume normal activities. Okay. Moving on now to varicose veins. Three risk factors. I think these are important. Increased estrogen. So basically these are patients on oral contraceptives or pregnant patients. Patients who have prolonged periods of standing or patients who are obese. Symptoms are 
dilated, tortuous veins. It's usually how varicose veins are described. And they usually complain of a dull ache, worse with standing, but relieved with elevation. So how they're going to manage this, we're going to tell them to elevate their legs because it feels good, wear those compression socks, and avoid what makes it worse, so avoid some standing. You can also do sclerotherapy, ablation, all those other procedures, etc. All right. Chronic venous insufficiency. Symptoms here are also leg pain worse with standing or sitting, improved with elevation as well as walking. They'll have pitting edema on exam as well as stasis dermatitis, and they'll have kind of a brownish hyperpigmentation. That's a big clue for chronic venous insufficiency. And they'll have venous stasis ulcers. Remember, I said this is the exact opposite of peripheral artery disease. So these are on the medial malleolus, and they have uneven margins. So little mnemonic for you guys. Medial malleolus has very messy margins. Hopefully that helps. This is a clinical diagnosis. Again, as with most vascular disorders, we give them compression and elevation. Things get better. Also encourage these patients to exercise and avoid standing and sitting for long periods. So basically, do what feels good, avoid what makes it worse, and have some compression. Uh, if they do have ulcers, you can do wet to dry dressings or an unaboot. Okay, I've gotten through a couple of the easier topics. Let's move on to DVT, deep vein thrombosis. Remembering that thrombosis is a clot that originates at the source of the pain. Calf is usually the number one location for this. The big one here boards may pick on, Virchow's triad. This is venous stasis, endothelial damage, and hypercoagulability. So some examples of this, uh, venous stasis, you know, recent surgery, travel, I believe it's over four hours long, recent hospitalizations, et cetera, hypercoagulability, pregnancy, cancer, coagulation disorders, which we're gonna talk about in heme, et cetera. Symptoms here are typically unilateral, though it's not entirely impossible to have bilateral DVTs, but for board purposes, think unilateral. Swelling slash edema, it's usually greater than three centimeters difference in calf size is most specific for a DVT. Uh, warmth, erythema, pain, and tenderness. Uh, on physical exam, you have what's called Homan's sign. And this is calf pain with dorsiflexion with a flexed knee. Boards love to put this with DVT, but it is so nonspecific. But boards love it. So there you are. Uh, diagnosis. There's, okay, little note about here about Wells' DVT score. Uh, it's a score that basically gives you points if you had any of the things that I just said, if you had swelling, warmth, tenderness, any of those risk factors, and it basically tells you whether or not to order a D-dimer or an ultrasound. And frankly, again, I just don't think it's worth your time to memorize all the factors. If you've already learned 
Birchow's triad and the symptoms of a DVT. I just don't think it's worth it. Um, diagnosis of a DVT is venous ultrasound is first line. Uh, I want also add a D-dimer. This is a highly nonspecific blood test. It can rule out a DVT if it is negative, but if it is positive, it cannot rule in a DVT. Uh, venography here is the gold standard and it will show us non-filling non veins, but again, just not done very often. Venous ultrasound is still first line. Okay. Management here, the goal is to prevent a pulmonary embolism. So let's not have that clot go to the lungs. Uh, we'll talk about PEs when we do pulm, but regardless. Starting with heparin, then switching over to warfarin, low molecular weight heparin for pregnant patients. When we talk about drugs, we'll learn that warfarin is teratogenic. This will be for three months if there's an identifiable slash reversible risk factor. They're going to get long-term anticoagulation if the DVT was idiopathic and proximal or if it led to a PE. But again, just normally no times three months. Uh, you can also do what's called an IVC filter for patients who, uh, with contraindications or who fail anticoagulation therapy. All right. Final topic, um, I kind of wish I would have covered this with room, but here it is anyway. Uh, giant cell arteritis. This is also known as temporal arteritis. This is what I learned it as. I prefer the term temporal arteritis because it helps you remember the location. Uh, I want you to pair this with polymyalgia rheumatica. You'll note that the demographic is very similar with women greater than 50 years old of Northern European descent. And what this disease is, it's an autoimmune vasculitis of the extracranial branches of the carotid artery. Again, I don't think that last part's very important, but it sounded complete. So just know it's autoimmune and it affects the arteries. Symptoms. Headache is number one. Unilateral, temporal, it's lancing. It's a very severe headache. I've heard people um, equate it to almost the severe pain of like a cluster headache, which we'll talk about with neuro as well. Um, but for those of you uh, reviewing for boards, you'll kind of know that's the severe pain that they're talking about. Um, they'll also have visual disturbances, such as amaurosis fugax, which is temp uh, excuse me temporary monocular blindness, preceding symptoms. So again, kind of sounds like a cluster headache. But then they have visual disturbances, kind of sounds like a migraine. What's this headache going on? But then they'll also have jaw claudication with mastication, which is chewing, or trismus, which is locked jaw, immediately after chewing. So I put these three together. They have headache, they have claudication, or trismus. Again, something going on with their jaw, and then visual disturbances. So all kind of this like temporal region plus their eye. Think temporal arteritis. Uh, they may also complain of scalp tenderness. And these patients, uh, blindness is their number one complication. This is secondary to optic neuritis. And remember, optic neuritis uh, is an autoimmune condition. So again, just like kind of putting this all together. I'm going to repeat this every time I talk about optic neuritis or really any autoimmune condition as we go through uh, EE and T in the future, etc. 
So um, hopefully the repetition will help solidify that for you guys. Diagnosis, these patients will have an elevated ESR and CRP, but please refer to the room episode about how nonspecific those are. Uh, you can also do a temporal artery biopsy. Makes sense. We're going to do a biopsy of the temporal artery for temporal arteritis. And these will have mononuclear lymphocyte infiltration or multinucleated giant cells. The useful part here was that it was multinucleated giant cells because it's also called giant cell arteritis. I personally didn't have anything that specific on my board review questions or my boards um, besides knowing that temporal artery biopsy was a diagnostic test, but just there because a lot of these, uh, that's an easy association to make. Okay, really going to test your guys' memory with the treatment here. This is paired with a Maya disease, because remember it goes with polymyalgia rheumatica. So they get steroids. The exception here is that they get very high dose steroids times six weeks. And with these patients, we really want to start treatment rather than waiting for testing because we don't want them to go blind since that's a, a big complication for them. Um, and these patients really start to get better really quickly um, with the steroids rather, um, rather soon. So get them treated. Okay. Few more questions for you guys. What is the gold standard diagnostic test for an abdominal aortic aneurysm? This is an angiography. Remembering that an abdominal ultrasound is the initial test of choice. Be sure not to get those mixed up. Now, what is the test of choice for an aortic dissection? And this is a thoracic CT with contrast. Name one physical exam finding in a patient with peripheral artery disease. There's a bunch here you can choose from. Decreased pulses, decreased capillary refill, cool skin, skin atrophy, shiny skin, thin skin, loss of hair, dependent ruber, or lateral malleolar ulcer. All right, takeaway points. I'm actually gonna throw in a quick other one here. There's gonna be six. Number one is know everything that's in the questions that I put. I really wanted to repeat a couple of them, but I'm trying to give all of them to be new in the takeaway point. So uh, that was number one. So uh, number two, pain in lower extremities with exercise that decreases with rest equals peripheral artery disease. Number three, aortic aneurysms are typically low in renal. Aortic dissections are typically ascending. Remember, dissections are high sections. Unilateral headache with visual changes and jaw claudication or trismus, think temporal arteritis. Number five, Homan sign equals calf pain with dorsiflexion with a flexed knee. Now, remember it's nonspecific, but boards love it, so you gotta know it. And the final one, the six P's of acute arterial embolism are the same as compartment syndrome. Yay, except for their pyrene Primary symptom is paresthesias. Cutting off your circulation makes you numb and tingly, 
where squeezing those with compartment syndrome makes them painful. All right. Hopefully everything made sense for you guys today. If it didn't, please write to me. My email is pastudysesh at gmail.com. I got a really awesome email from a listener, Alexa, and I just wanted to give a big shout out to her. She made my day. So um, uh, congratulations to her for wrapping up PA school. She is so close to taking her boards in about a month's time. So hopefully she will do wonderfully. Um, next week, we're going to see how much material I get. We might either be doing a cardio hodgepodge or I'm going to break it up into two parts. So we will see how that goes. But again, we just have a couple more episodes of cardio, including a cardio farm. So something still cardio related for resources, including show notes, the updated blueprint for those taking it in 2019, as well as the old one for those taking it in 2018 still. You can head on over to my website at pastudysesh.blueberry, and that's blueberry with no e's, dot net. Also, check out our Facebook page. We are at pastudysesh. Uh, please follow us there. I'd love it if you'd write us a review on iTunes. Share us with your friends anywhere on Facebook, in person, on iTunes, everywhere. Just help us spread the word. Um, really, uh, I can't grow without you guys, so it means a lot for me to, um, keep growing and keep this going for you. Uh, let's see, I'd like to thank Lee Rosevere for the use of his songs Tech Toys and Curiosity for the intro, outro, and question portions of our podcast. So, I hope you guys have a wonderful week studying, and I will see you guys back next week for some more cardio.